and welcome to another episode of Script to Screen Podcast. I'm your host, Mercedes K. Milner, and I'm so stoked about the script we're covering today. Romancing the Stone has been on the bucket list for a while now, and I'm so grateful I had the chance to read it and screen it with all of you amazing humans. If there are any scripts you think I should cover or if you have any recommendations for screenwriting books, I welcome them with open arms. There is never too much content to put in your arsenal as a writer. Staying Curious is the name of the game, people. You can send your suggestions or shoutouts to me at script2screenpodcast at gmail.com. And now, let's get into the script. So today we are going to be covering Romancing the Stone, written by Diane Thomas. For any new listeners out there, the written by credit indicates that the writers or writers are entitled to the story by credit and the screenplay by credit. So the story by credit is anyone who has worked on the treatment or an outline of the movie, and the screenplay by is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. So what is Romancing the Stone about? From Wikipedia... Romancing the Stone is a 1984 American action-adventure romantic comedy film directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Diane Thomas, and produced by Michael Douglas, who also starred in the film. When a meek adventure romance novelist is tasked with delivering a treasure map to her sister's captors, she embarks on a real-life adventure with a gruff-hired guide through the Colombian jungle. And of course, romance ensues. So before we jump into the script, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the tragically short life of Diane Renee Thomas. When I decided to read Romancing the Stone, I hadn't yet heard about this being the only produced screenplay written by Diane Thomas. But when I did, I thought, what? How did this amazing writer not get the chance to share more of her work with the world? And then one quick Google search broke the secret and my heart simultaneously. Diane Renee Thomas was born on January 7, 1946, in Salsu Marie, Michigan, and would later move with her family to Long Beach, California at the age of 12. She would go on to earn a bachelor's in business at USC and would work as an advertising writer for a time. She took years of acting classes studying under Sherman Marks and Jack Garfin and taking part in a slew of improv groups. In 1978, Thomas was working as a waitress at the Coral Beach Cantina on Pacific Coast Highway and using her spare time to work on Romancing the Stone. There's a rumor that her big start came when she pitched her script to Michael Douglas while serving him one night, but there's no definitive evidence that that actually happened. But what we do know is that Michael Douglas would later produce and co-star in the film, and Thomas would sell her first feature to Columbia Pictures for $250,000 in the 80s. People. Her rise to fame would later be publicized as a sort of Cinderella story, a humble waitress turned screenwriting queen. But she would detest this narrative because... It completely overlooked the amount of years and training she put into her craft as both a writer and as an actress. On October 21st, 1985, Thomas, her boyfriend, and a friend went out for drinks after attending classes at Pepperdine University. Because her boyfriend was the one that had the least to drink, 
they designated him to be the driver. The road along Pacific Coast Highway was slick with rain that night, and the car spun out on the road and hit a telephone pole at 80 miles per hour, killing Thomas instantly. The friend, Ian Young, later died at the hospital, and her boyfriend was taken into custody for investigation of driving under the influence, but no further legal action would be reported. Thomas died just six weeks before the release of the sequel to Romancing the Stone, The Jewel of the Nile. At the time of her death, she was working on the third installation in the Indiana Jones trilogy and had been under contract at Amblin Productions. To honor her after her death, the UCLA Extension Writers Program created the Diane Thomas Greenwriting Awards. This story strikes a chord because of the fact that she not only died way too young, but she died just as her career was taking off. That skewed perception of the Cinderella story is such a slap in the face because she worked her ass off for years to make this dream a reality. No one gets an overnight success story in this industry. It's hard work, it's a lot of no's, and a lot of writing for no one but yourself for what feels like forever. If there is any takeaway from Diane's story, other than to please not drink and drive, it's to keep going. Keep writing during any spare hour you get. Keep creating insane stories. The key to this is persistence. And if you have that, you will make it. <sighs> now that we've gotten all the feels out of the way, let's get into the script. Fade in. Interior mountain cabin day. A size 6 double E boot kicks through the door, ripping the old board from the wall. Angelina, in lacy camisole, doeskin skirt, boots whirls from an old stove. Grogan fills the doorway, a dark hulk against the dazzling light outside. He cocks his shotgun. Flies buzz, hides hanging from the beams. Something simmers in the pot over the fire. Tumbling river waters are heard in the distance. All else is still. It is 1875. A cigarette dangles from Grogan's lips. What's it gonna be, Angelina? It seemed endless. I was sure I had lost him at the river. In the winter of 74. Shotgun aimed at her breast. He takes a step inside. Angelina. Angelina surreptitiously slides a boot dagger from its sheath. You can die two ways, Angel. Quick like the tongue of the snake, or slower than the molasses in January. When I told him it was October. I'll kill you if it was the goddamn 4th of July. Where is it? So, this is a very striking start that grabs you from the first action. It's extremely visual, and right away we know we're stepping into some unfinished business between these two characters. There's a bit of campiness to it. We see Angelina's voiceover being used as a way to add a bit of deadpan to an otherwise very horrifying situation. The tone here is so clear, also. You can tell this will be a fun action adventure, but what I love about the way we meet these characters and their conflict is that this is a situation that, written in another tone, could easily be more suspenseful and scary as opposed to the little bit of light that we get here at the top. 
I love how the writer invites the reader to use deductive reasoning to solve the mystery of this scene. Obviously, these two have unfinished business, but by the bottom of the page, we know that Angelina has something extremely valuable. Maybe she's even stolen it from Grogan. Whatever the item is, it's worth Grogan killing her for, and it's worth her fighting for her life to keep it from him. Now, in the film, this scene was a lot different, far more sexualized. Rather than putting the focus on Angelina being a force, she was a woman in the shadows whose dripping wet camisole was the only thing plainly visible for the sake of showing off a nipple. To be quite honest, I was extremely disappointed. It sets a completely different tone from the script, and it takes away all of the reasons the script is amazing. And spoiler alert, it's kind of like that the entire time. Before we move on, I want to make a quick note on sexy versus sexual. I want to preface this note by saying there is nothing wrong with female protagonists being sexy. A woman embracing sexuality on her own terms is a form of feminism. It is only when the female body becomes a prop for male entertainment that we move into gag-inducing territory. On the page, readers can imagine Angelina as a strong, sexy woman who can stand her own ground. On the screen, she was reduced to a dripping wet nipple. (laughs) And let's not forget the order to take her clothes off. I mean, (laughs) come on. Ask yourself, who is that for? That is not sexy. That's dehumanizing for the sake of a male hard-on. And don't at me just because you can't handle the truth. Learn from this, please. Now, let's see where this goes in Act 1, which I titled... Dust off your passport, bitches. We're in it now. So I want to start this section off by first questioning, where the hell are we? This relates to the fiction to reality switch up. So there is a really surprising twist that comes within the first few pages where we are introduced to the true main character, Joan Charles, later in the movie named Joan Wilder. She's the novelist that provided our film's opening with Angelina and Grogan. So far, the script is fairly description-heavy, but I think it's a great example of using visual elements to clue the reader in to who Joan is, which we should all be doing. Pull back to reveal Joan Charles, surrounded by globes, books, Maps tacked to bulletin boards, a stack of mail marked Elaine. She pauses for a cup of coffee. A woman who has never developed any confidence in herself. She turns back to her work as the doorbell buzzes. She hesitates, checks her calendar. No appointments. All very puzzling. Again, the bell buzzes. From this one paragraph, here's what we can glean about Joan's character. Joan is meek and lacks confidence. She has a sister, Elaine, who we can presume is outgoing, adventurous, maybe even a frequent traveler, judging off of the mail stack. And she may not have much of a life outside of her work, hence the confusion by the surprise visitor. If it's not an appointment, she has no idea who on earth it could be. Joan lives out her fantasies in her novels, but in real life she's too scared to experience anything that goes beyond the realm of her rigid lifestyle. This is a major problem because she is never going to come close to making her dreams realities if she doesn't come out of her shell. 
Her internal struggle revolves around her fighting her naturally timid tendencies to open herself up to the life she wishes she could lead. Joan's inner conflict from script to screen, however, also goes some really frustrating change. Rather than this being a journey about a meek woman learning to embrace her inner Angelina, she is now a hopeless romantic waiting for her real-life Jessie to come along. The hopeless romantic element was an aspect of her character in the script, sure, but in the film they bring this to the foreground and shove all of the other empowering female journey stuff to the background. For me, part of the major appeal of Joan's journey was the idea that her character would do a necessary transformation for herself, and love would come along as a secondary perk. This was going to be an action-adventure narrative with a female protagonist that came into her own. On the screen, she felt like a sidekick to Jack Colton. Why? Because 1980s misogynists probably couldn't handle the idea of a woman saving herself and not being half-naked for an hour and 45 minutes? Just a guess. It's gross. So I want to take a moment, now that we know the internal struggle, to talk about the main plot problem, or the external struggle. In the WODC Book of the Month, Screenwriting is Rewriting, Jack Epps Jr. covers the main plot problem in screenplays, defining it as the big external issue of the film. You want this issue to seem impossible to beat when your main character is introduced to it, because they are completely lacking the skill set or the mindset to go up against this thing. Here, the writer's main plot problem feels particularly impossible for Joan's character because of the way she is. It would be a daunting task for anyone to have to transport an antique map to a gang of criminals in order to save their sister, but for Joan, that's so far out of her comfort zone, it might as well be in a different universe. This is a fantastic example of using the main plot problem to force the necessary character arc. So brilliant. Take notes, people. So our inciting incident comes on page 17, scene 28, and it's in the form of a phone call from a hostage Elaine to her sister Joan. Elaine, for God's sake, what kind of trouble are you in? There are some people here who want the map. Joni, do you understand? Joan is speechless. You can't tell the police. You can't tell anyone. You have to come here, Joan, with the map, and everything will be all right. Elaine, please. You have a room waiting at the Hotel Emporio in Cartagena. Write it down. Hotel Emporio. The front desk will have a telephone number for you to call. You have a passport, don't you? But I've never used it. Elaine, I can't do this. I can't go to Columbia by myself. You know I wouldn't ask. You know I never have. They'll cut me, Joan. They're gonna cut me. Hold on Joan's face, numb. There are a couple of things the writer has established here. An undeniable call to action and the stakes. This is a life or death situation and Joan is the only person who can take on this mission because she's the one with the map. When you're approaching your own inciting incidents, make sure you are creating scenarios that make your character the only person for the job and give them enough skin in the game to ensure they can't deny it as much as they'll absolutely want to. Now that we're locked in and it's personal, let's make our way to act two, which I titled 
Which way to Cartagena? So the next step after the inciting incident is for the protagonist to commit to the quest. That means they have decided, yes, okay, I hate this so much, but I have to go on this journey. Our commit to the quest scene here is fairly simple, but it does a really great job of establishing extra danger and more stakes on page 18, scenes 30 to 31. Interior Jones foyer night. The deadbolt softly clicks open. A gloved hand eases inside, flicks open a stiletto. A man stifles his cough. Zolo slips in the door. Colombian, dark overcoat, aviator shades. Zolo is 40-some years of bad news. Ruthless would apply. He steals down the dark hallway. Zolo eases open the bedroom door. A street light reveals an empty bed. Zillow snaps on the light. Open drawers, closet, clothes gone. Joan Charles staring up from dust jacket backs in a carton on the floor. He spots the phone pad, picks it up. Insert pad. It reads, Cartagena, doodling. Pan Am flight number and a departure time. Now we know that Joan has accepted the mission to save her sister, but we also get a formal introduction to Zolo, the mysterious visitor from before, and here's what his character intro establishes. There's another big bad after that map. And it's not just Elaine's life on the line anymore. Joan's life is also in danger. So right at the start of the second act, we know that Joan is going to struggle hard through her arc. But something I think is worth noting here is that the writer starts with likely the smallest possible challenge for Joan to overcome. The flight to Columbia! It's probably the most basic step of her journey, but the writer does a fantastic job of giving the reader visuals, like the cocktail remnants, the torn up napkins, and the offer of another drama meme by the stewardess that will show the audience how hard this character will have to work moving forward. Another benefit to starting so small with the challenges is that it gives you more room to steadily ramp up the chaos for the main character. No struggle is too small. Moving right along to a man with a particularly familiar hat, aka Jack Colton. We meet Jack Colton during a shootout in scene 64, and before we even know his name, we know he's our love interest. Remember, this is supposed to be action-adventure, yes, but it's also a romantic comedy. So we need a romantic counterpart. <laughs> Why do we know that Jack Colton is our romantic interest? Because of that particularly familiar hat. Then something beyond Zolo catches her eye, and Zolo looks where she's looking. A man, in silhouette, outlined against the morning sun, his hat particularly familiar, carrying a water bag, coming this way. Zillow immediately shoots at him, exploding the water bag, and the stranger immediately unslings the Winchester 12-gauge pump he carries and returns fire. Joan dives instinctively toward the bus, rolling under. Zolo dives into the bus, firing at the stranger. The stranger is seen only from the back, moves with the grace of a dancer, 
pumps a shot at a window of the bus. Even before Joan realizes she's in the presence of the man of her dreams, the reader gets this little nugget to show us where this is headed. Then, when the shooting stops, we get their actual meet-cute. Even though the story isn't strictly classified as a romantic comedy, it still has a romantic storyline, and that's why we need this classic romantic story element. For those that don't know, a meet-cute is the scene in which the future love interest in your screenplay meet. There is no specific rule that says how this meeting needs to unfold, only that the audience should be able to tell clearly that even if these two characters hate each other at the top, they'll be in love before the end credits. At this point, we've already been tipped off by Jack's hat that he and Joan are meant to be, but the approach here leads the audience to wonder how on earth the writer is going to get these two to fall in love by the end, in this instance by forcing them to stick together. He starts walking, uphill, the way the bus was going. Please, I need your help. Is that my new career? If you could just get me to a tele- Half a year's salary just flew south for the winter. My Jeep would win first prize in a scrap metal convention. And in five minutes, everything I got left in the world is going to be soaking wet. So lighten up, lady. I haven't got the time. Keeps going. You don't understand. My sister needs me. It's a matter of life and death. If I don't get to her, I'll pay you. How much? Fifty dollars. He laughs, keeps going. So naturally we can see once Joan names the right price, he's willing to stay and be her guide, and thus they will remain together for far longer than either one of them foresees. But as the audience, we know, they're meant to be together. Next I want to talk about something I haven't quite touched on in this show before. It is the art of the car chase. And we're going to be looking at scenes 145 through 161. And this information is coming from how to write a car chase scene from Studio Binder, which I will link in the show notes. So car chase scenes are an action film staple. But as in everything in screenwriting, these are intricately crafted to create the maximum amount of intense adrenaline and increased stakes. Here are the key elements you will need to craft your own using our car chase here as an example. One, the setup. This is the context for the chase. In Romancing the Stone, we already know that Zillow is hot on Joan and Jack's trail, and now he's got Jeeps in tow. Our setup here is an escape from the antagonist. Next is the driver. Juan is described on the page as 30-ish, aloha shirt, shades, very, very casual, but no fool. He's known as the bellmaker and is an eccentric marijuana drug lord who also happens to be a big fan of Joan's novels. Not exactly the supercharged action character someone might expect, but that adds intrigue and gives the audience pause. They're forced to wonder, how is this guy going to get them out of this? After that is the ride. When riding a car chase scene, the car you choose is extremely important because it not only gives the characters a physical vehicle to escape in, it helps to shed light on the type of chase this is going to be. Here's our getaway ride. 
a supercharged Bronco done up Western style, the little mule emblazoned on its sides. The little mule isn't exactly what anyone would imagine as a Fast and Furious level ride. It's completely absurd, and that's why it's going to keep the audience invested in how this one wild Bronco will beat out Zolo's fleet of jeeps. The answer? To use their location to their advantage. Which brings me into the next element, the location. The location for this chase is completely unconventional, a secret weed farm in the Colombian countryside. This takes everyone out of their element, except our driver, Juan. His knowledge of the area ultimately helps to give our heroes the upper hand and escape Zolo's crew. Moving on to the music. Though it might not be one of the first things you consider, the music chosen for the chase is integral to not only providing tone, but also aids in ramping up the energy for the audience. Here the music selection chosen is, quote-unquote, the music of Angelina, which in the film ended up being some really cheesy 80s music. Um, but you know, gets the job done. One last tip, this is the time for your action paragraphs to shine. Don't be worried about not having enough dialogue to balance the page. In sequences like this, there isn't a lot of room for dialogue anyway. To add it in arbitrarily would only take away from the intensity of the scene. Be sparse with the dialogue and go heavy on the details. We want the visuals, people! This brings us into the midpoint twist. Scene 195, pages 92 to 95. Living for the moment. So up to this point, Joan's main mission has been to get the map to her sister's captors, but with the new developments with Jack after their enchanting night in Fiesta, she's feeling emboldened and is starting to embrace her inner Angelina. So this midpoint tryst is a symbol of growth and progress in her inner journey because she's ready to go for the treasure herself. But of course, this leads to our big fall, stealing the stone. Pages 101 to 105, scenes 229 to 231. So up to this point, there have been so many established opposition characters, it wouldn't be surprising if it were hard for the reader to determine exactly who the antagonist is. While my money would be on Zolo as the big bad because of his power, influence, and deadly nature, this is definitely Ralph's moment in the sun. By the end of this scene, he's single-handedly stolen the stone, kidnapped Joan, and forced Joan to question Jack's motivation for romancing her. As an audience, we know that for a good portion of their adventure, Jack has been largely motivated by finding the treasure to fund the purchase of his dream boat, but he's also had a change of heart because of his feelings for Joan. We're left with a bunch of questions that seemingly won't be answered and a lot of despair. Will Ralph be successful in ruining everyone's plans? Will Jack really make it back to Joan? And if and when he does, will she still trust him? Will Zolo kill them all? In your own scripts, this is the type of heightened anxiety you want to induce in your audiences with your big fall. This will force them to want to continue on. To the climax. Scenes 288 to 352. Pages 114 to 127. The climax here brings all of the major players in the narrative together for one final standoff. This is where the antagonist, Zolo, seems to be at his most powerful and the protagonist, Joan, seems to be at her most vulnerable. 
One thing I'd like to point out here is that everyone in this scene comes to it with their own specific motivations. Joan wants to save her sister. Ira wants to get his hands on the map. Ralph wants to kill Ira. Zola wants the stone. Jack wants to get the stone and Joan. And Elaine wants to be saved. The climax should be structured in a way that brings all of the specific wants sought after in your film come to a head, primarily between the protagonist and the antagonist. This is also your protagonist's opportunity to put together all of the internal growth they've done over the course of the journey and put their need before their want to win. Since the beginning of the story, Joan wanted to lead a life like the main character in her novel, Angelina. What she's realized over the course of her journey is that she doesn't need to be Angelina to be adventurous and daring at heart. She has all of that stuff within her already. I mean, she created the character. All of this culminates itself in one insane punch that takes Zolo out for good, which I want to point out that in the actual film, they took that punch from Joan and made his fall into the crocodile pit a complete accident. So... Yeah, I'm bitter. <laughs> but what about everything else? What about Joan and Jack? What about the stone? Calm down, listeners. We'll get there in Act 3, which I titled, El Corazón is Where You Find It. So after everything that transpired, we get the come down. New Joan, who dis? We meet our main character again as a woman transformed. Her walk is confident, her posture upright, and her head held high. Not even a gang of catcalling teens could deter her from walking the path she wants to. She's really rounded out her journey in a way that makes her glow, but she's alone. No Jack? No Stone? I mean, we could end the film with Joan being a strong, independent woman who is fearless and confident. That would be totally fine as an ending. But that leaves out our what happens after everything happens. And if you haven't listened to this podcast before, then I just need you to know that what happens after everything happens is basically exactly what it sounds like. Everything in the film has happened already. You think it's over, but... There has to be some type of nice little bow to wrap everything up, because although Joan ending as an independent strong woman would be a super fine ending, we still have a few loose ends to tie up, namely Jack and the freaking stone. So, we've already been charmed out of our pants by Jack Colton, and there's no way he's not coming back, right? Right. And he's bringing the dream boat with him. Their arms go around each other, they embrace like the world was just beginning, and they lock themselves into a kiss that never ends as the boat sails away into the sunset of Manhattan, flying Colombian colors, El Corazón lettered on its keel. Fade out. The end. Script to Screen podcast is an original production of the Ride or Die Chicks and is hosted, researched, and produced by me, Mercedes K. Milner. The original theme music is by Foosh, and other music featured in this episode comes from Zapslot, Audio Hero, and Music for Video. 
If you'd like to know what I'll be reading and screening each month, you can visit our website, thewodc.com, to see my curated list of screenplays for the year. You can also check out the Reading on Writing Book Club if you'd like to read the Screenwriting Book of the Month with me as well. For the month of May, join me in reading Nick Pizzolatto's pilot for True Detective titled The Long Bright Dark and Ellen Sandler's The TV Writer's Workbook. Until then, read something, watch something, and write for your life.